You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For April 3rd, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nilder. What's the best way to get rid of coal plants before they reach the end of their expected lifespans? In many communities in the U.S., the plants are either shown to be uneconomic within a regulatory proceeding or are simply retired by their operators to save money, oftentimes without a plan for transitioning their employees to other jobs. As we reported in the news of episode 83, Spain has come up with a so-called Just Transition Plan that will offer $250 million in job retraining and other direct assistance to affected workers after the coal plants in which they work are shut down. And, as we reported in the news of episode 90, Germany has announced a plan in which they will pay at least 40 billion euros in aid to affected coal mining states to help them transition their economies to a future without coal, as they proceed with their plan to shut down all of their coal-fired power plants by 2038 at the latest. But such national approaches seem a very distant possibility here in the States, particularly at this point in time with the Trump administration continuing to publicly call for keeping coal plants open, even as their operators announce more planned retirements, even of coal plants in which the U.S. government is a part owner. So what can be done to retire coal plants where they are currently able to operate and economics and regulators aren't yet enough to shut them down? Democratic State Representative Chris Hansen of Colorado, who represents East Denver, has proposed a solution for his state that bears closer consideration, refinancing the debt that utilities still owe on their coal-fired power plants with cheaper public bonds and then shutting down the plants. It's an idea that would retire coal plants and reduce carbon emissions, save utility customers money, create better investment opportunities for the utilities, and replace that power with cheaper, clean solar and wind power. Everybody wins. Or so it would seem if Hansen's bill makes it into law in the current legislative session. It's a powerful idea whose time may have come in Colorado, where fossil fuels still make up 78% of the state's electricity mix, with wind and solar contributing 18%, while major utilities in the state, like Excel Energy, have declared their intention to transition to 100% clean power in the coming decades. Will Hansen's bill have the right approach to help achieve those goals? We're going to dive into all the important details in this episode and find out. Then in the news segment, we'll compare and contrast Representative Hansen's answer to retiring coal in Colorado with that of three other states in the American West. We'll discuss an astroturfing effort that sought to oppose energy transition in Australia. And we'll consider what Norway's latest divestment from oil and gas really means and doesn't mean. But before we get into the show, I'd like to offer a big welcome to a couple of notable new bulk licensees, the Australian Renewable Energy Agency, or ARENA, whose former CEO, Ivor Frischknecht, we interviewed in episode 71, now has a bulk license so that more of their amazing staff can listen to the show, and the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, whose founder, Adam James, joined us way back in episode 19, is making this show available to their students in pursuit of their mission to provide young people with the tools they need to impact clean energy policy. 
I'm thrilled to have both organizations on board. And if you think your organization would benefit from a group discount on annual subscriptions to the Energy Transition Show, just drop us a line. And thanks for spreading the word. All right, on with the show and our conversation with Representative Chris Hansen, recorded February 25th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Chris, to the Energy Transition Show. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me on. You know, there's a lot we can talk about today because you are, in fact, a true energy geek with a deep knowledge base. But I think I want to focus in on a bill that you've submitted to the Colorado House of Representatives, HB 1037, otherwise known as the Colorado Energy Impact Assistance Act, which would essentially put Colorado on a path to retiring its coal power plants. And this idea really makes good economic sense now because wind power is now cheaper than coal power in Colorado. Uh, I think coal power sells for around $30 a megawatt hour versus around 25 for wind. So is that new market reality really the genesis of this idea? You know, I think that has certainly the economics here are a major driving factor in this transition. And and I think, you know, the numbers might be even a bit more stark than you laid them out. In fact, in Colorado, the average cost of the coal fleet here is north of $35 a megawatt hour. Huh. And wind has been bidding into Colorado at as low as seventeen dollars per megawatt hour. So there's a wow. there's a really strong economic driver in the marketplace. And then if you think about also the low prices on the solar side, with batteries, those are being bid in at twenty five dollars a megawatt hour. So there's number of options that are significantly better on a price standpoint than continuing with these coal plants. And so I think, you know, this transition is happening really across the country and in many parts of the world where we're moving away from coal because of the economics. And that doesn't even get into the larger discussion about environmental impacts and criteria pollutants. This is simply on how can we lower costs for ratepayers. And so I think there there was a strong economic reason to look at the bill. And I think, you know, the other thing I was trying to respond to is because we know these closures are going to happen for economic reasons we also can then anticipate some of the economic impacts of those closures. And for some of these small towns that have hosted these coal plants in some cases for decades, you know, it's a major part of their economic viability and the amount of work that it provides, salaries that it provides for direct employment and the local tax base that's going to have an impact. So that's really what the bill is about is trying to meet those challenges of how to help Colorado consumers while trying to mitigate the impact from these plant closures on the towns and the workers. So how big of a transition are we talking about here? How much of Colorado's power comes from coal? So Colorado has a pretty diverse mix and it's getting more diverse every year. In 2018, Colorado produced essentially half of its power from coal. If you look at all the operators, Excel and Black Hills are the two IOUs or investor-owned utilities. And then we have Tri-State, generation and transmission. They supply many of the local co-ops and rural REAs. And so if you add up all the operators across the state, it's roughly 50% of current generation. Okay. So I understand that Christopher Clack of Vibrant Clean Energy, who was our guest in episodes 29 and 46, did a recent study on this subject and found that Colorado electric customers could save almost $250 million per year, or over $2.5 billion in net present value through 2040, by retiring its fleet of coal-fired power plants while simultaneously increasing electric sector jobs and eliminating 510 metric tons of emissions. But in Clack's study, the coal is actually replaced with a mix of wind and solar 
solar, backed by battery storage and natural gas, and not just wind. And knowing Christopher's modeling methods, I can only assume that's because those were the low-cost, effective resources at any given point in time. But if the coal plants were just replaced with wind, and the grid could still be balanced that way, then I'm guessing the savings would be even greater since wind is now the lowest cost resource. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. I mean, from a modeling standpoint, Dr. Clack does amazing work. I've had a chance to talk with him on several occasions about the details of those studies. So there's no doubt, you know, significant savings there. But I think you're right if we were able to use the lowest cost option because we had the ability to balance the load and handle the intermittency, then you know, you'd be able to lower the costs even more and save ratepayers even more money. And I think the key there, which leads to perhaps a side discussion here, is what is Colorado's future when it comes to grid interconnectivity and things like RTOs or regional transmission organizations. Mm. And I think that becomes sort of the pacing factor to have better access to balancing load from our neighboring states. Yeah. Wow. That <laughs> that's a whole nother a separate conversation on RTOs <laughs> yeah, at some point. That's a whole nother dimension I wasn't prepared to go into, but I definitely take your yeah. point on that. All right. Well, before we continue with the policy questions, which is really what this is about, let's just briefly walk through the basics of the plan so that people understand what we're talking about here. So there are some fairly complex details around its implementation, which we'll discuss in a moment. But I think the core idea is pretty simple and straightforward. As I understand it, the idea is essentially to securitize the state's coal-fired power plants by using a public bond to buy out the debt that the Colorado utilities currently owe on their coal power plants. And the financing cost for the existing debt on these coal plants is about 7 to 8%, and that cost gets passed directly on to utility customers. So the public is already on the hook for that seven to eight percent interest. But the cost of the money with a rate payer backed bond is much lower. It's more like three to four percent. So just by securitizing the debt still remaining on the plants, Colorado ratepayers can save about four percent. In addition to that, ratepayers will also save money on operational expenses because the power would presumably be replaced with wind and solar power, since that's now cheaper than coal. So instead of continuing to spend money on coal to shovel into the power plants, taxpayers would essentially be paying for less expensive power from wind and solar farms. So is that essentially the core of the idea? By swapping investments in coal for investments in wind and solar, utilities can recover the remainder of their investment balances and retire the coal plants while reducing the total cost to consumers on both the debt and the operational costs. Yeah, I mean, I think you've nailed the first half of the bill, Chris. That's exactly right. We're basically swapping ratepayer costs of about 7% to handle the IOU's weighted average cost of capital, or WAC. And that is typically around 7% in Colorado. And they can replace that with ratepayer back bonds that would be around 3% because they would receive very high ratings because of the way we wrote the bill. And that's essentially the first half of the bill. You know, the first goal of the bill is create this financial tool that allows that transaction to happen. And that in and of itself is not a new thing. There are more than 20 states that have that type of tool in place. I think what is important here, though, is that it's kind of the second half of the bill, which is that we use some of the savings generated by that transaction to then help the workers in the towns that are affected. So, That's kind of the overview of the bill. And then you hit a couple other great details, which is that it's not just the refinancing that creates savings. There's also savings that are generated by the lower marginal cost of power, which you mentioned. And then I think the other one that people often forget is that you're also getting rid of fuel price risk. And so the fossil fuel plants, either gas or coal, that might be retired using this tool 
they have fuel price risk as markets go up and down for the price of the fuel. And all of that gets passed on to ratepayers. And so there's kind of an additional benefit that isn't even part of the bonding mechanism. And that's to get rid of that fuel price risk for customers. Gotcha. So some of the savings from the swap will then be used to help workers and communities affected by the closures, as you mentioned, both the communities where the coal plants are and the communities that mine the coal, transition to new jobs and to new economic opportunities. So do we have any idea how much money will be available for that transition assistance and if it will actually be enough to really help these affected communities? That's a question that we've spent a lot of time thinking about, and we've got an approach in the bill that is pretty flexible to make sure that we hit the target. The way we've set up the bill is that 15 to 25% in that range of the savings generated by the bond transaction becomes available to help the workers and the towns where there are closures or retirements. And so to give you a hypothetical example, let's say you were to close down an old power plant that had a residual value of $100 million dollars. We estimate that about $40 million in savings would be generated from the bond transaction. And so then you take 0.15 times the $40 million, and that's about $6 million available as a minimum to help the towns and the workers. And then we have a provision in the bill that would allow the PUC to increase that up to 25% if there was significant need. And so we have a level that would really address the two biggest problems that we're trying to look at. One is the ability to help retrain workers, to provide assistance to workers who lose their jobs or are laid off. If you think about a plant closure where say 50 to 60 jobs might be lost, that would make sure that we have at least $50,000 per worker available to help answer the need. And then the other part of it is to help the local government backfill lost tax revenue. Mm. So you can imagine a small town you know, where the coal plant or the power plant is the biggest thing in town and half or more of its tax base could disappear overnight. And so we reserve several million dollars in these transactions to help backfill that lost property tax revenue. Interesting. Obviously that will take them so far, right? I mean, it does sound like a substantial amount of money. This is not trivial, but on the other hand, it isn't going to be like, we're going to keep giving you $2 million a year forever, right? I mean, well, that's the right. assumption obviously behind that has to be that they are going to have to use their own efforts to transition away from needing that tax base. Yeah, for sure. And we're really just trying to make sure that there's resource available for that transition right. as opposed to some kind of permanent solution. I mean, that wouldn't be viable in a long-term financial sense, but we do want to make sure that these towns have the resources they need to drive economic growth and revitalization of their communities and whatever makes sense for their situation instead of what happens now, which is they basically just get left out to twist in the wind, so to speak. And that's what we want to avoid. We can see the challenge and the problem, the opportunity here to do better And that's really what I'm trying to accomplish with the bill. Gotcha. So as I understand it, this process would actually start as a technical matter with a financing order that's being approved by the PUC, the State Utility Regulatory Body. And that order would specify the amount of the bonds to be issued and how the proceeds would be used. It would also specify a special energy impact assistance charge, which will be determined as a percentage of the value of the savings, and which is separate from the utility's base rates on all ratepayer bills. That money would then be used to eventually pay off the bonds. Is that about right? Yeah, that's exactly right. So we'd in that financing order from the PUC, they would evaluate the bond transaction, make sure that proper costs are being put inside that transaction. 
and then evaluate how much money should flow back to the local communities for assistance. Okay. So just to finish with the basic outline of the plan, the refinancing process would be administered through a newly created Colorado Energy Impact Assistance Authority, which would be governed by a seven-member board of directors appointed by the governor, who would be required to have some relevant occupational experience. So that's a nice twist. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's important. <laughs> uh, the authority would then be authorized to receive the bond proceeds as well as to cover its own overhead from a portion of the savings. And that authority would also administer the payment of transition assistance to the affected communities. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. So let's move on to the details because as ever, that's where the devil may lurk. Once the debt on the coal plants is paid off, what will happen to the plants? Would they then be owned by the Colorado Energy Impact Assistance Authority or would the utilities still own them? And I guess the real question I'm trying to get at here is how can we sure they'll be shut down and decommissioned? Yeah, I mean, that's going to be part of the financing order that the PUC would review is to make sure that decommissioning is covered. I mean, there's a, a plan in place for all of these units from the day they open for what decommissioning should look like and what costs would be involved. So that won't really be new. That's already part of the status quo. You know, as far as the decommissioning plan, I think different units have different approaches, whether they basically tear it down and sell the scrap metal and then have to do reconditioning of the land to return it to its original state, right? There's all those sorts of provisions that have already been agreed to as far as the decommissioning of these units. So that is not a new subject that has to be tackled here. That just gets embedded into the overall decommissioning cost and therefore would be part of the order that the PUC would authorize. Gotcha. So am I understanding you correctly that there would actually be a requirement attached to this refinancing option that the plant is then retired? That's right. Yeah. You can't take the bond proceeds and then not retire the unit. This is part of a PUC order. So it would have the same force as any other PUC decision. Interesting. Okay. So I'm glad to hear that because that didn't necessarily pop out to me when I was doing my research. I was like, it kind of sounds like they could shut the plant down through this refinancing facility, but they wouldn't actually be required to dismantle it and decommission it and do the environmental mitigation, but it sounds like they would. Yeah, that's all covered by current PUC rules, so we didn't have to spend much time on the bill on that portion. Okay, cool. All right, so let's move on to the other costs that might need to be paid off. I mean, I assume there are some. For example, I assume that the coal plants are still under contract to buy coal from suppliers, right? So would there be some sort of an early termination fee that they have to pay there, or do we just have to wait for the contracts to expire, or what? Yeah, it's a great question. That sort of detail is really part of what the utility has to submit to the PUC. In most cases, these fuel contracts are several years in length, but not 10 or 20 years. And so you normally have a situation where you would time the shutdown to basically be the end of the next fuel contract. But that's something that the PUC would evaluate along with the submission and is a relatively small amount of money compared to the overall transaction. So I think that can be handled in a pretty straightforward way once the utility puts in its submission. So would that cost then be rolled into the total package that's being refinanced or would it be dealt with by the utility separately or would the CPC rule on that differently or what? Yeah. I mean, the PUC would just take a look at it. There may be a situation where you know they might have to absorb an early termination fee depending on what contract's in place. But my understanding in most of these situations that you know they've got fuel contracts that might run out one or two more years for part of their supply to hedge against 
different price movements, but these retirements typically take a couple of years to plan anyway. So it's not like you'd shut things down tomorrow and then have a bunch of big fuel contracts. You typically just handle that by not renewing any contracts and going to the short-term market until your final shutdown date. So I don't think it would be a very significant issue in these refinancings. So since the utilities can earn a profit on capital investments and wind and solar farms are basically nothing but capital investments, they don't have much in the way of maintenance costs, they don't consume fuel, whereas utilities don't make any profit on the debt they owe on coal power plants, then I should think the chance to substitute equity for debt would (laughs) appeal to the utilities since that basically gives them a way to earn more profit, wouldn't it? I mean, at least if they own the new wind and solar farms. Yeah, and I think you're getting to really where the policy edge is in this discussion, which is how much utility ownership should be guaranteed or allowed after the retirement. And that's been the source of most of the negotiation on the bill. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. To the north of Colorado, two states are taking the opposite tack from Representative Hansen and going to extreme lengths to keep their failing coal plants in business rather than looking for a relatively painless way to retire them. Wyoming, immediately to the north of Colorado, passed a law in early March that would only allow utilities to recover the cost of building new power plants to replace retiring coal generators if they first tried to sell the coal plants to someone else, and if they were able to find buyers, they would then be forced to continue buying power generated by the plants from their new owners, even if a cheaper source of power is available. It's like Wyoming is the Hotel California of coal plants. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. Item 2. Even worse is what is being contemplated in Montana, immediately to the north of Wyoming. The Rosebud Coal Mine in Montana and the giant 2-gigawatt coal strip power plant it supplies are in dire straits. Westmoreland Coal, the Colorado-based owner of the Rosebud Mine... 
Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.